Hi, everyone, and welcome to the UX Research Rundown podcast. Uh, my name is Henrik Matson. I am the CEO of Lookback and your host for this show. And uh, with me today, uh, I have the one and only John Cutler, who, uh, you know, I'm a big fan. I'm sure a lot of people who are interested in building product and product management and all sorts of products and are on Twitter uh, know about uh John, but we will get to know him even uh, better. Uh, he's actually a researcher from the beginning. So I don't know how many people know that, but I think that's pretty awesome and not very surprising. Uh, and we're going to talk about uh, my favorite problem, which is how do we get people uh, who are not researchers or not people doing research uh, to engage with all the research uh, that uh, we're doing and uh, you know build better products and experiences as a result of that? Because if we do a bunch of research, and no one, uh, you know, engages with it, then it's very hard to change things. So uh, thank you so much for being here and uh, welcome on the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Awesome. So as per ancient tradition, it's been one season. Uh, we always start by asking our guests to uh, give us a bit of their origin story. Uh, and uh, I'm sure uh, especially kind of the research part and how you got into that and and how you got out of that and all that stuff. If you could give us some uh, some background, please, that would be a great start. Sure. Um, yeah, I dropped out of college and wanted to play music, and I had an idea for a video game. Um, kind of going chronologically now at the moment, um, but I think that was my first foray into product. I had this small company, and we made this uh, game that was ultimately commercially a flop. Um, so that's kind of funny. Um, but that kind of kicked off a series of events. You know, I w- was pretty just lost in my twenties, but also doing fun things. It was played with this band and we toured around a lot and I would do these kind of various producty like roles and not product like roles for a good decade. Um, and I sort of got a lot, a late start in this. And then I, I started to settle into more legitimate product roles in things like ad tech and, um, sort of different media type things, different B2B things. And then um, probably, you know, it's been 10 10 or a bit more years, kind of shifted and moved here to Santa Barbara from New York City. Um, And at that point, it was a big change. But I was looking, after a little bit of consulting, I was looking for a job. uh, And this started a series of working in B2B SaaS companies for the most part. And actually, that job was a UX researcher. So I remember at the time, I... um, went out to coffee with the head of design for this company Appfolio, And she said, well, we're looking for this researcher. Have you done that? And I was kind of like, no, uh, I haven't. And I started to do more stuff on it. And, and what's really funny, I always talk to JJ about it, but um, I, I was, I'm probably wired in many ways to be a researcher, but then I also have this product man. It was probably not the best role at the end of the day because I probably should have been a product manager, but with this research bent, but I loved it. You know, I remember for the interview, I prepared this heuristic review and I was like, this is great. And I loved like going through this stuff, but that was a good experience because at that company at Folio, my role was primarily uh, facilitatory. Like my, my role was to engage people with our customers. Um, obviously I did some nuts and bolts type work, um, doing usability, you know, moderated usability testing sessions and like different research methods that I was kind of learning and applying at the same time. But also I was the person's, you know, facilitating kickoffs for things. And JJ was very interested in doing 
you know, design sprints and we were trying new things. We read that uh, Lean UX book, which is a really good book um, by Jeff uh, Gothelf and Josh Seiden and we're trying to apply. So it was, it was cool being at a company that was trying new things at a time when without a lot of baggage, it's not like JJ was going in and saying, you know, UXR must be run this way. It was a company with really strong product chops and we were just trying different things. And it's actually funny, um, fun fact, I was a look back customer at the time because we were releasing a mobile, we, we needed it under, the, the company was using, a lot of the people were using a mobile web version of this product on site doing maintenance repairs. And we knew nothing really about how they were interacting with the product. So I was very eager at that point to try to get the product set up so that we, we put a little wrapper around a web wrapper and called it the app. And I think we were trying to integrate the SDK and we were getting these calls going. And I have some amazing calls. I was looking back at this, uh, you know, I have some power uh, presentations I gave at the time of people like from the field, like talking about things using look back. So yeah, early, early customer at that point. But I think ultimately, um, you kind of also had this product management thing. Uh, so I left there and went, worked at Zendesk and then this company called Pendo, um, which did, you know, analytics and sort of onboarding things. And then my role recently for, you know, four years was at Amplitude where I was working with a lot of our customers and future customers, helping them kind of both with the product, but then also broader questions about how to quote unquote do product and use quantitative data in many cases. But a lot of that also involved talking with teams about how they approached research uh, and, and other things. So yeah, I've been, um, quite a journey uh, to get this point. And then in two, you know, four days, I'm starting uh, in, in a director role at a company called Toast, where I'm going to be working in what they call product enablement. And what I love about that is my peers, you know, there's I have peers in research operations and peers in design ops and peers in, you know, roughly kind of product ops and all these different things. So we're going to form this, you know, we have this nice team of people doing this stuff. So I'm sure I'll be back in the game now. Um, as I'm doing it. So yeah, that's the, the long story, not so short. Oh, love it. Love it. Uh, awesome. Yeah. So um, I get so nostalgic when I hear these stories of like early look back customers that work <laughs> with the product, like, you know, when, when, <laughs> when it was cool to just, Oh, you can record a mobile device. This is awesome. Yeah. Uh, a lot of things have happened and that's super cool. So do you think that your, um, oh, I have so many questions. I mean, I think this is going to be a, a great, uh, you, you have very relevant experience, I think, for, for what uh, I'm interested in talking about here. But I'll start with this. So in your new role now, and perhaps even in the role you're just leaving, do you still think that you have mostly that facilitator role? Or like, how has that evolved over over time? Yeah, that's... Um, so, you know, I had a question with this career shift recently, I knew I wanted to go and be focusing internally. And so I had this career shift, you know, do I want to get back in the thick of it of product management, you know, being a product manager on a team, or ultimately, do I care a lot about like the health of the overall environment and, and thinking of what I do almost like as a platform, like facilitating people within, mm. facilitating and supporting people, enabling people within the company. And that was a hard question I had to ask myself because, you know, being a product manager and doing it, it's really fun. You know, you, you, it's just, I, I remember it reminds me of music a lot. You know, it reminds me of being in a band with a group of people. Like there's that sensation when you're a product manager and you're on a team. But then I had to think about, you know, well, but then it's like one team. 
but what would it be like to do things that supported everyone? Uh, and so I ultimately, you know, picked the latter um, approach this this time around. And it probably will be more facilitation oriented. But I wanted to underscore that concept of like in product management, there's this idea of being a, like a platform product manager. Mm. And I think platform is an incredibly good analogy here. It's an overrun term. People say we've got a platform. They don't have a platform. But, all, but, but what I like about the word platform is the dynamics of what it means when there's a platform. You have many people who have different applications that they want to w- run. And you probably have to collect a lot of data for them. You have to do things. And then you need to have synthesize that in some ways. But the analogy actually works where you have to collect this data and you have a common source of stuff. And then you have to synthesize it for different applications so people can do it. But when you think about like product enablement or even research operations or different things, you're in the business of like being a force multiplier for the organization, but you can't treat everyone the same way. You know, you can't say Mm. just do it this way and it's the only way to do it. You know, you have to think you have to be thoughtful about what people are trying to get out of it. So that's why when you mention, is it a facilitation thing? It is. And it's also that idea of like creating mm. platforms within a company that help people do their jobs more effectively. Um, and I think that, you know, not to jump ahead too much. I think that in a, for a lot of researchers, they're, they're struggling so hard to even get anyone to pay attention to their research that they don't take a step back and they think, Okay, ultimately, the goal here is to help decision making in this company. And my goal is to think about how creatively to scale expertise and scale the information we have to everyone. Mm. I understand the instinct to, to protect the research craft, and I think it's very important. But if you take a step back and if you think, I work in a company with 500 people, and what if I could up-level everyone in terms of the decisions that they're making? It's kind of a balance that everyone faces, I'm sure. But that's th- these are some of the things on my mind, even in this new role. Yeah. Yes. And super interesting and spot on for this. Um, you know, it's funny. I always tell my guests, you know, we, we, we only have one podcast episode. We're not going to be able to write the book on this. Like, don't, you don't worry <laughs> about covering everything. But, you know, seeing your Twitter production and, and the stuff, you your productivity press, we can write the book on this. So, like, if you would, like, map it out of all of the... Uh, kind of challenges involved organizationally and culturally and with these facilitation roles and everything in terms of carving out a place for research, because this is a process that have changed a lot over time. I mean, just in the seven year that we're talking about now, since you were a researcher, it's like, you know, research is more part of the organization now than it than it used to be. So people are arriving in this space. You know, the engineers were there first, if we simplify, and then came the <laughs> designers, perhaps. And then, you know, so so how do you carve out that space um, in a collaborative way? Because it's not about claiming territory, I, although sometimes the rhetoric is a little bit like that. But, you know, so uh, how, how do you make that happen in that kind of, magic well, way that we think is the realities to any the, the analogy that i give and, and even at amplitude look i got briefly involved in education and i was then helping you know recently i was helping the team that was going to be responsible for community and i think there's a list of things and and I even go back to when i was at zendesk i was the pm of search you know search is just like google right it's easy so one one way to think of this is that organizations will always have 
Community is a great example. You go into a company, say you want to do a community. They say, oh, you mean user groups? Like, no, there's much more to community. Or you go in and you say that you want to do, you know, content or you want to do evangelism or you want to do, edu- oh, education. It's just like Salesforce Trailhead, right? Oh, let's just do it this kind of way. And I just think that there, that one, one thing to just let's bring out into the open is that in any specialized domain, there's always going to be this balance of having to advocate internally about what's possible about that particular discipline what, how it can help people, what does good look like, why it's important. There's going to be questions about when to kind of protect the level of the craft versus maybe like have a little less craft, but spread it more broadly in the organization. And everyone has that. And and I think that's the first thing to accept. Like people who run education teams have the exact same discussion. They go in and they say, well, education is this whole art and this theory. And, you know, Hey, guess what? It's not just about courses. You have to create cohorts and community, you know, so a, a deep education thinker has this whole laundry list of techniques and then has to meet with the executive who says it's like trailhead, right. Or, or, or something. And so I think that my experience with talking to a lot of researchers sort of mimics that, that there's those sort of natural tensions, uh, the thing. So that's the first thing that comes to mind. Like there's just a sort in physics. Anytime you have an emergent area of specialization that not so many people know about, and it starts with generalists. And then there's a debate between specialization and, and, and to do that. I think that the second thing that comes to mind with it is, um, one pattern that I see in a lot of organizations is that they're still just coming around to the idea that there's not just one motion and one way to run every single thing they do in their effort. And so this is not just about specialization. It's about standardization and consistency versus flexibility. So the first one is about special, the normal trouble that specialists have all the time. The second one is about the normal questions of centralization and standardization versus flexibility. So what you see with a lot of researchers or the ones that I meet is that this this battle between we want to try to be involved, yet not all efforts are created equally. Not all initiatives are created the same way. Sometimes it really is good to tell a researcher to go off for four months and do something. Sometimes it really is. Many times it's not. Yet the company that goes in and says, we must run just one way of doing all things. And I think a lot of people I meet in the research ops space, this is their dilemma, where they instinctually understand that there's many different motions that they need to support, but they're struggling to even get one way to work right. So it's like, do I standardize and then make it easier for the organization to understand what we're proposing? Or do I decentralize what we're doing and be more flexible, which might be more effective on the ground, but maybe not more effective at explaining to those particular things. So that's the second one, I think. It's like the standardization versus the decentralization, building on the specialization thing. And then I think that the final pattern that I'm seeing out there when I'm, when I'm chatting with people is the vast overlap in these, uh, resolving the overlaps that are existing now at the moment, where you'll have these, uh, you know, research operations team and then design operations team, and then a voice of customer team. What the hell are they doing? Why do they insist on owning this stream of information? Mm. Um, you know, my friend Michael is at Figma and, and he's having to battle these things he's doing in research in voice of customer. But I think he's coming to the realization too. He's like, ultimately we need to start thinking about the analytics side of it. We need to be thinking about community you know, so you'll notice he joked that like you'll notice that some product leaders at Figma go on Twitter and say like, "What should we build next?" 
And you could imagine that you're sitting there in um, the either the research ops team or the voice of customer team or the other team at Figma. You're like, what are you doing? Like, we've got this dialed in. So I think that the final thing, which is the outgrowth of the first two, is that what you tend to see in organizations is that these sort of highly overlapping things reach almost kind of um, an inflection point where suddenly people start asking, should they just be in one cohesive group that thinks about these types of things? So I don't know if that helps, but those are the three patterns that I'm noticing that probably not new to anyone listening to this, but I'm just, if anything, I'm just reiterating the tensions that you're seeing that like the, you know, the specialization stuff, the standardization stuff, and then the overlapping of emerging roles that causes both friction and advantages are like the physics of this problem. And so I think it's very interesting. Yeah, no, I think a lot of people would recognize themselves in that landscape. Like that's that's the world people are navigating. And it can vary like from big companies uh, to smaller companies to new companies to, you know, it depends a little bit, but but it's definitely something like that. And and you can add other com- like trade-offs to it too. I mean, a lot of research leaders I've talked to uh, say that basically like it's also the, a lot of their work is uh, about bridge, like co- navigating this landscape, helping their team navigate this landscape, mm. building uh, relationships across this landscape, uh, building alliances across this landscape. Uh, and But that's not like in their job description. Their job yeah, description is... On if you're doing yeah. that. It's funny because I wrote this blog post called um, uh, The Integrator Burden. And in that in, in that particular blog post, I dig into this challenge and it was very interesting hearing different people. Like some people said, ah, this resonates so much, but um, I don't want to be the glue person anymore. I, I'm too burnt out. I can't be the glue person during the pandemic anymore. You know, my natural instincts as a researcher was also like empathy and glue and shared understanding. And in fact, I'm maxed out. I can't do it anymore and do my day job you know, of doing this stuff. So that resonates a lot. I mean, that's like a, um, and I think this is what I've noticed about a lot of folks in research and a lot of just, just more thoughtful, thoughtful is a judgment based word, but they might just be more systems thinking types or whatever. There's just a lot of burden that goes along with that particular work that can be difficult. I mean, I even remember at some place like uh, at Appfolio, just even being in the thick of things, sometimes you you just see more of the organization than you might expect in those roles, which is pretty um, heavy. Yeah, so I I think I I haven't really had a uh, I haven't gotten a a research leader to kind of admit it, uh, but sometimes I ask about like you know who should carry that burden, and isn't it a bit unfair that that falls on let's say the research leadership, right? Because ultimately. Uh, this is just a theory I have. <laughs> I think that uh, we're moving into times when this kind of idea that you can compete and build great products without having a sophisticated kind of research practice and understand, you know, looking at all of this data, qualitative and quantitative, it is kind of an obsolete idea. Like those days are over and we need to do this. So it's in the company's interest to make this happen, but the burden often falls on on you know the research uh, leadership, for example, could be other functions too. And um, do you agree with that? And and how do you think that different people in an organization should um, 
should relate to that and what who's who's whose responsibility is it so to speak well i think that part of it is i, I mean i think that part of it is just due to sheer exposure not necessarily um you know i don't think it's like malintent of the organization and then i think another part of it is that like most parts of most organizations do not um, slice across the org, right? So you'll notice that people in like human resources or people teams often feel that burden, obviously, or anyone is sort of like has insights and bridges across those things. So I think that there's part of it that's just uh, a byproduct of that type of role. But I agree with you that that I think that the, I mean, ultimately it falls on the CEO, I guess, and other product leaders to admit that this is a part of their tool chest. I think what I'm noticing out there is that there's still with a lot of companies, there's sort of a, um, I'm a product leader, I'm a CPO. So therefore I need a counterpart. I need a CDO. Okay. That's great. And we're going to have our, you know, we're going to create these triad and this trio, and it's going to be great. I think that people still haven't, um, they still just kind of lump in a lot of these other leaders underneath those other leaders. Like, yeah, well, you know, uh, yeah, the head, you know, the researching, I think that what we probably will get to is not, not in the next year or two or whatever. I think you'll get to a place where there'll be, we won't talk about trios as much as we'll talk about like the four or five heads. And there'll be someone who sits alongside those folks who obviously partners a lot with design, but is thinking about really holistically about insights and has a very broad remit, uh, remit around qualitative and quantitative stuff. And I guess then the question is like, how will design interact with that? Or will design try to withhold back the sort of the design aspect of that versus the quant stuff or other things? I think that's TBD. I think that's the tension that you're seeing in a lot of companies now at the moment. Yeah. So quick follow up on that um the I have another theory so uh, <laughs> I, 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 this is not me coming up with this stuff I'm just observing some things but um I I see across pretty much every tool space um we're moving towards more and more collaboration right so uh you know it started like if we take developers like you know GitHub and stuff like that it started pretty early for for obvious reasons and then you know uh, designers were kind of working in isolation for a long time then like they got Figma and tools like that where it's very much about real time collaboration and stuff like that and that's what we're seeing also in in uh, in when we do research with look back and we realize hey like the it used to be about recording sessions that's not what it's about anymore you know it's not even about almost i mean there are some table stakes you need to be able to record sessions you need to be able to uh you know run the uh, analysis after etc cetera, etc cetera. but it's really about kind of the live uh cross team collaboration it sounds like a a fancy speech or something you know but but it's it's really like coming into fruition with the help of technology, but also with the help of maturity in different companies. And I wonder if that's something you also see. And if you think that there is some sort of, what does that mean to our industry and the way that it's organized in, you know, in, in across different companies? Uh, it, will we have a breakup of all of these silos or will there be kind of a counter movement or what do you think? Well, I think that it's, I, I, Think of the work of someone like Matt Skelton, who did this, wrote this book, Team Topologies, and he's very mm. um, 
focus in that book about describing different teams, but he hits on the point of just there is a limit. There is a cognitive limit over which you hit points of cognitive overload and cognitive drain of the teams. And the interesting part of that book is, you know, we talk about silos, you know, so when re- after reading that book, you know, one says, well, si- you know, naturally occurring wall might be a v- benefit. Can you peek your head through it? <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. And so I think that what we're going to see is much more thoughtful organizational design. And what I mean by that is that at the moment, what you see is these very brute force matrixing efforts or, you know, one dominant way that everyone is supposed to work. And when you think about Matt's book, and if you want to research it, it's it's actually like a great book and I recommend it. You know, he talks about like enabling teams and there's value stream oriented teams and there's specialized uh, subsystem teams. I love the words that he uses because it gets you thinking about like, no, there's not just one way to run this. It's not just like either the matrix or functional groups. There's ways to be extremely thoughtful about this. And that to me is kind of the future of this, where the future will not be infinitely collaborative, cognitive overhead interruptions every single moment. Um, infinitely real time or anything like that, because we, we just have natural limits. Like you cannot expose a group of six, seven, eight people to so much information. And the technology is just accelerating the rate at which we can either access the information or derive insights from the information or whatever, but there is a, there's a limit, right? Mm. Um, and it used to be that the limit was just the effort required to get the information. But now with like tools like look back and other things, the, the the collecting of the data and even synthesizing it to a point is taking a little less cognitive overload, but you still have to process it and turn it into action. <laughs> so I think what's going to happen is we're going to reach a point where the primary limiter is the ability to synthesize and utilize the information, meaning turn it into decisions and turn it into action. And there's going to be a really, there's going to be a, a trend of thoughtful org design where people respect that there can't just be sort of one functional or matrix model, whatever. And so what would that look like in practice? That would look like in practice that you would have a research team that would divide itself into more platform-like centralized, um, what we might call like town planners, you know, like they're the ones who can raise all the ships and get, get things to work across the whole company. And then you'll have aspects of the research team that, um, almost can like uh, parachute in, so to say, right? (laughs) When there's a specialized problem that needs to be solved. And then you might have people like you, you see this evolution in marketing and marketing operations that are just working all day on systems and just making sure that the plumbing is working, right? So uh, Simon Wardley had this idea of like pioneer settlers and town planners. But the interesting part about that, other than the words can be a little iffy, you know, it sounds very like, you know, crusading or whatever. The interesting part about that is that the work of the pioneers is made possible by the work of the town planners. So you could imagine that when in the United States, they were going across the West in the westward expansion, Chicago was a hub and it was run by town planners. And they made sure you could get the supplies you need to go off and find California, right? Or find gold or doing whatever you were doing. Certainly there were people in California before people found them. Um, But Um, You get the idea that what I'm trying to present here is that in practice, you'll see much more nuance in the org design. And then I think 
there's a physics to the problem where you'll still need to define relationships between groups and be more fluid, but they'll just be more sort of thoughtful processing. I don't know if that answered your question or if I took it to a different place, but I think that's the future. And I don't think endless collaboration and or endless real time is even possible nor desirable in many ways. Yeah. <laughs> no, I can't. I, I, when you were saying this, I, uh, I thought back to my PhD days. I did a PhD in economics and there's this uh, German economist who, uh, who said, Lush, who said something, uh, to the, to the, something like this. He said, the only reason we can endure at all is because not everything rushes in, not everything happens to you all the time, you know, and there's that, there's definitely that cognitive limit. So, um, this is super interesting. I, um, I, uh, as a tool person, you know, I, when I started thinking about these things, I was like, we're going to fix this with the tool. <laughs> the tool is going to fix it, you know. But then as I've matured, I've realized that, you know, this has a lot of aspects. It has these organizational aspects. It has these kind of leadership aspects. It has these builders uh, aspect and it has a tool aspect. And uh, do you, what do you think are going to be some of the kind of the leaders of this? Is it going to be technology, product? Uh, organizational theory, like what's going to bring about this new order? Well, I think that it's already happening and it's happening in organizations that have a mix of sort of systems thinking, operational, uh, we would call it like an operations 3.0 approach, you know, where they're thinking more, not uh, standardization is not the be all end all, you know, to that type of thing. And then I think it's going to be about deep, passionate people and the sort of coming from many different perspectives, you know, the sort of, it's funny because even within product, there's like the product design perspective. And then the design perspective, there's this overlapping camp of the UX perspective. Then there's the research community. And then that overlaps with product in the discovery community or whatever that is. And then on and on and on. So I think that it's going to be a combination of those traits, just like passion for the craft, passion for thoughtful approaches to operations. And then also just the sheer element of competition, you know, when companies are getting, you know, just soundly beaten by companies that have figured out some of these elements. I mean, when I talked to, to, to Michael at, at Figma, just the level that they're even thinking about this stuff and the thoughtfulness they're putting towards some of these operations. And, and it's funny, I've had conversations with product ops folks and then research ops and VOC people at the same time. And is anything perfect? No, but the, just that they're having people going to work thinking about this yeah. is important. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. What, what role do you think that research is going to um, have in it? And, and when I say research, uh, you, you can answer this as you will, either kind of research to function, but what I see in our research on kind of how companies research is that the act of kind of engaging with user research, uh, perhaps like live observing something, watching a user struggle becomes kind of like a uniting, a mm. focusing force, because that's really what it's about, right? You see like the experience you're building and you're in there and you're kind of seeing it in action. Sometimes product building can be a very theoretical exercise or like mm. even like you're sitting with your team and you're reviewing your 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 stuff your each other's stuff and you're reviewing each other's code but when you're like in front of the user who's struggling with yeah. the real thing it becomes like this common force do you think that uh you think that's right and and like what kind of role would would that play in this well one one thing that stands out maybe i'm just repeating what you're saying in a way is that 
um, when I think about, um, so I'm just going back to my days doing research at this company called Appfolio, and certainly there was a larger team, but my goodness, the power of having a well-curated research panel of a thousand odd people that were willing to fill out screeners to be involved as, you know, co-participants in the design of new features and respond to different types of studies, like having that access and eliminating the friction mm. while at the same time, this, this is actually a great example. Like many people are like, just contact any customer you want all the time. Like we should be able to talk to any customer at a time. Great. Some companies haven't even gotten to that point. That's actually extremely difficult. The next level is to think like, well, we know from a research perspective that just asking everyone any question for all the time is not going to help us out really. Like you want a representative sample. You want like to engage the people in a participatory process you're doing. So that's like kind of a next level thing, you know, like, okay, well, we're not just going to, great. We've gotten over the burden of just, can people even get in touch with customers now? They can, they get in touch with the right customers. And then it seems like there's a next level above that, right? Which is, okay, they're in touch with the customers, but are, are we using the right representative sample of customers, but are we using the appropriate techniques relevant to the product challenge at hand? Mm. You know, so like, are we, we've gotten in the contact, we've made sure that it's representative. Now are we applying the correct techniques? Okay, great. And you can see how technology probably enables all these particular things. I mean, many companies are just struggling with the dumbest problem about there's some customer success manager who feels they need to sign off on someone calling the customer and there's no way to either automate that or make that public. Like just mind numbing problems. But once you're through those things and you get through the like the basics and then you start thinking about representative samples and then you start thinking about the right techniques and doing that. I think that the, the next level then for that is you know, the refinement of that technique is knowing when to go really super deep in terms of the discipline and rigor of what you're doing. So you do meet plenty of organizations that seem to have a research team and they're always advocating and product seems to enjoy what they're doing and kind of product is grateful. They, they love their researchers for doing it, but there's still not a perception of when, when and how to apply high rigor to the problems. Mm. <laughs> that they're doing. So you, I, we could go on and on across this progression, you know, it's sort of a progression of things, but I think, I, I don't know if it answers the question specifically, but I feel that those are those sort of, those are the steps that are necessary. But one thing that, to keep in mind is I think that it's a progression for every company and you reach a plateau and then it's like, you've got to think about the next level of it. So, you know, the companies that have incredibly easy access to customers at a certain point, you know, they, if you sit on your laurels and you say, well, we've done it now, we figured that out. No, no more, no, we don't need to improve what we're doing anymore. <laughs> and then that seems to be where the trouble happens. But going back to what you said, though, I mean, how many teams don't experience that magic of, I mean, that's what I loved about Look Back at that time was just, oh my God, how amazing was that? You know, how amazing... Was it to get insights into someone interacting with the surface area of the product in a more natural way? But this is my point about the rigor thing. If you go to someone who does deep ethnographic research and understands all the literature and stuff behind it, it's funny. They all like look at that and they'll be like, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> where is your ethnographic study plan? You know, like, what are you doing? Yeah. You're sort of saying to them like, hey, I understand all that exists, but this is magic. I'm talking to you as a product manager now. <laughs> like, <laughs> this is magic. No, it's not magic. 
you know, back at the university when we did this, this is, you know, go and I will cite, you know, study XYZ, uh, you know, published in 1994, that this is not good ethnographic study. So I think that that's where, but, but back to the point is that if, if just speaking as a product manager, I think that sometimes researchers underestimate the very basic connections that can be created and they're right to be suspect of it because it could go in the wrong direction if you didn't expect, but like, I don't know. It's just magic. Putting my PM hat mm. on, it's just magic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, totally. And it's very unexpected too. It's hard to plan for. It's just sometimes it happens and you need to uh, take care of it. So um, cool. Uh, just, uh, uh, I would love to just keep talking forever and ever, but I'm going to try to uh, <laughs> to, some, uh, to to reach some sort of conclusion here. So if we, if we uh, take uh, the perspective of a listener now who is in this field, an up and coming research leader and thinks that, well, yeah, this is an exciting future. There's plenty of work left to be done here. Like, do you have any advice on like how to navigate this? If you want to be at the forefront of this development that you're talking about, like who do you ally with in organizations? Who, what do you read? What do you do to kind of bring yourself closer to that? Well, I, you know, this to follow on the theme that what we've been talking about, um, I think that you, you you pointed it out. I think we were talking about like kind of commanding a certain high ground or space in the company and how there are advantages to that, but that's like ultimately not the final goal, right? And I think that that's what I'm noticing that, that the, for a lot of, I mean, I speak to some design leaders and they're like, okay, it's taken us six years. We finally got the kind of respect we need. And, and they'll even talk sometimes about like installing processes that they realized were not really optimal, but that they had to do to just get people going through the motions. And I think that what this brings us to is the idea that like, and, and not to try to interject with another model that maybe the researchers are like, why are you telling us about that model? I think, think to me, the thinking around thinking of these as internal products, there is that element of like, are we truly succeeding? That's what outcome-driven thinking is. And so I think it's so easy if you're doing in research being like, we did what we could. We delivered the study the way we did, or we got look back and stall, and that's what, you know, we said we would do that. Or from a research, you know, we, we did the best we could to tell product what they should get up to, and they ultimately didn't take our advice. <laughs> I think that that like, it sounds probably cliche for me to say it, but I think preparing yourself for a career situation where the, where you're, you're essentially owning a, a platform, you know, you're owning an internal product that's meant to uplevel the whole organization and asking like, is it, are we doing the job? Are, are, are we succeeding as, as from an outcome driven standpoint, I think that that's a very uncomfortable, but I think that's the step that a lot of leaders need to think about. So kind of putting your, it's almost like once you're at the seat of the table, then the real work starts, which is the most depressing thing to say. You've been working for 10 years to get the seat at the table, right? <laughs> yeah. It's almost like a generational thing there where, you know, think about the generations, uh, you know, my grandmother, my father, like put me in a position to do something meaningful, right? Uh, through all their hard work, but they wouldn't get any credit for it. So uh, there, yeah, there's going to be some generations huge, that build it up. Um, but Yeah. I was going to just add one thing related to, to that. Like, 
I think that this is, I, I said all that, but I wanted to caveat that by saying there's a huge problem right now with the product world that the product world takes credit for the hard work that's been put in place by a lot of design folks or other folks from things where they sort of are like, we've just reinvented this new thing and it's great. You know, we're going to reinvent UX research or we're going to reinvent that. I wanted to be really clear to say when I'm talking about like adopting a sort of, uh, you know, outcome focused mindset with it, I'm not, a- I'm not asking people to, to sort of succumb to the buzzwords of product or whatever. I'm just saying that like, we could remove the word product and just think about outcomes from that. I'm saying that that's sort of the next progression for that. But the idea that a lot of these advancements in UX research were on the shoulders of people who are are not really getting any credit for it. (laughs) Um, And meanwhile, orgs are like reinventing UX research from the ground up. That bothers me a lot. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Uh, But I do think on the positive side of that, I mean, you can call it product or whatever, but I've talked to other research leaders who've, um, uh, kind of said the same thing where, you know, researchers are actually have all of the tools that it takes to yeah. understand why a product, you know, how a product actually is performing and, you know, what to do about it. That's the job, right? And it's just apply those skills to the product that is research Right. That's a great way. To, and that's what the best folks are doing too. You know, I, I talk with the, uh, research leader recently. And they're like, we've done a research study on research at the company. I mean, that's, I love that you bring that up because that's like all the tools are in place, the systems thinking, the outcome centricity, connecting with people, being thoughtful about it. I would say that some of the additional tools of like this kind of operations 3.0 or the team topology stuff, thinking about the org design stuff that might not be in the wheelhouse of a lot of research folks. And certainly not in the wheelhouse of a lot of product folks either. So that's no judgment, you know. <laughs> it's just that you might want to think if if the goal is to apply that level of thinking to what you're doing, you know, beyond saying our analysis of the situation is this, and here's the opportunity areas, which would be you know a common thing. The next thing in the product thing is like, and we are going to try this for this outcome, and then we're going to reflect on the outcomes. It's like tacking on that little part at the end um, that's important. Yeah. Awesome. Wise words. Um, I'm going to stop us there, John. I, I could talk forever, but thank you so much for coming on the on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. And uh, sure, yeah, this is great. You know, awesome. Uh, an honor to have you. And uh, we're gonna uh, see each other on the Twitters. Uh, and uh, also uh, follow this uh, podcast season. This is season number two, uh, and there's been a lot of great. Uh, leaders on for season number one too so uh, have fun with it happy researching be kind and uh, you know take it one day at a time take care awesome thanks for having me